Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. It's good to see you all. Uh, welcome to church. Those of you that are visiting with us, welcome. Those who are online uh, checking, checking in, uh, welcome. It's good to see you all. Um, weird week, wasn't it? It was cloudy for Denver. felt like I was in Seattle. Um, my wife's birthday was this week, which was a lot of fun, but uh, just seemed like kind of an odd week. It was a geek week for me. I got a bunch of brand new computer equipment, so long nights, a lot of technical reading. I'm still not done. So anyway, anyway, uh, this I think is going to be a very, very interesting uh, sermon today. It deals with I, th I think something that is increasingly important in our culture, it's always important in every culture, I actually believe, that it, it's, it's dealing with the issue of how, how do we build character and sincerity? Um, now, we've titled this series, The Anatomy of the Soul. We kind of stole that title from what John Calvin called, uh, that was his title for the Psalms. But we decided to kind of really push into this series because we live in a culture that really is kind of like a road that's crowned in the middle and it has two ditches on either side. There's one side that says your emotions are everything. And so you need to live totally according to how you feel. Just give in and let her go. And that causes this, you know, follow your passion, do what you love, uh, just be your authentic self. That's where all that comes from. Now, on the other side, there's another ditch that you have people like Tim Ferriss that are now following some of the Stoics, like Marcus Aurelius, and in, they're saying something entirely different. They're saying your emotions are nothing. You just need to learn how to suppress them and just get along. And so you've got these two extremes in our culture, and there's a lot of people parking in both those camps. But what we find throughout the Psalms is a very interesting treatment of our whole humanity. There's expression of virtually everything that we can experience as human beings throughout the Psalms. Now, today what we're going to consider is, I think, a really significant aspect in our culture when it comes to developing and possessing character and sincerity. Um, At one point, I think it, you can reduce it down to this. I think these two issues are the difference makers with the people around you. If you don't have character, if, you, if you're not sincere, you're going to be the type of person that suffers the worst indictment of all when people tell you they wish, they regret that they ever met you. I don't know that there's something more painful to hear than that. A person just saying, I, I just wish I had never met you. As opposed to the other end of the spectrum of a person of character and significant, significant character and sincerity, that a person's able to say, I, I don't know what I would do if you, were, if you weren't a part of my life. 
Those are two radically different ends of the spectrum. Now, I want, I want to start with, I think, what is a very interesting examination of the relationship between character and sincerity. Both of these are taken from the Oxford English Dictionary. Um, character is defined as this, the mental and moral qualities distinctive to an individual. And sincerity is defined as the absence of pretense, deceit, or hypocrisy. So character speaks to what is actually present in our internal life, and sincerity speaks to how that is manifested in the degree to which it's manifested externally. Now, based upon those definitions, you could say that a person that is a really bad person could actually be sincere. So long as his manifestation of who he is and what he thinks on the inside is consistent, it's without pretense, it's without deceit and without hypocrisy, if that's what he's like on the inside, as well as on the outside, you'd have to say he's sincere. But I, I really don't believe that that's how any of us think of this. I, 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 this week, when I was thinking through this and pondering it, I had to admit, I have never thought of it like that. When we refer to a person of character, we refer to someone that is distinctively good human being. When we think of a person that is sincere, you know, go back, I don't see this very much. I still sign many of my emails sincerely. But that, that signature or that, um, what do you call it, that sign-off, whatever, but um, it's not very common anymore. But when we do think of a person that's sincere, we think of it as a good thing, not something that could be, you know, good or bad. And so I think that this really is going to be an interesting few moments for you this morning. I, I want to take one more step back as, before we enter into this. In today's vernacular, one of the most common and well-known pursuits in regard to our own pers personal character is this pursuit of what we call the pursuit of our authentic self. Now, I think we have to admit that the, the definition or description of the authentic self varies greatly. It really does. But most of us know enough to believe deeply that there is a tremendous sense of personal satisfaction that comes from knowing who we are and knowing what we believe and living in a way that's consistent with that, without compromise. We know that. Most of us know that. But most of us equally know that some of the worst shipwrecks of our conscience come from when we don't. We know what's right and we don't do it. And our conscience is greatly animated in its affliction of us. So there's a lot in this for sure. Um, I, I think even in the midst of all the confusion that we see today about what makes a person truly good, this still rings true. That a person that lives consistently with her convictions and, and stands fast according to what she believes to, true, to be true, even if, she wrong, if she's wrong in those beliefs, People still respect that. But a person that does not live according to what he or she believes is relegated to a very unfortunate place, even in our society, that is just, it's, it's painful because it's hypocritical. It's disingenuous. So there's a lot in this for sure. So I want to ask the question, how do you actually build good character and sincerity in your life? If you're able to say, well, I did a brief assessment today and I really don't, 
I'm not comfortable with the character that I presently have, and I don't, I find myself always kind of putting on a show, a pretense, uh, a mask, if you will, that other people can see. And I, I really don't want to finish my life that way. How do you change? What are the things that you have to undertake? Now, I, I think the full definition to that is far beyond the scope of what we can consider in one sitting this morning. But I, I think there's three things that, no matter how you conclude this, they have to factor into the foundation of, a, of an answer that really is helpful and trustworthy. Um, we're, go we're going to look at the source of character and sincerity, where they come from. We're going to look at their nature, and lastly, what a brief examination of what we're learning today about why it's so difficult to have character and to live a sincere life. So if we launch into this first point, the source of character and sincerity, we begin to see some of the depth of what David wrote in this 15th Psalm. The, the 15th Psalm is written like many of the other Psalms in a way that poses a question and then provides at least part of an answer. And Psalm 15 is written that way. Verse 1 poses actually two questions that at first glance, I think many of us would look at it and say, well, those are just spiritual questions. Those don't speak deeply to how I live on Monday through Saturday. They're, they just have to do with God and Jesus. And in some ways, that's true, but there's a relevance in them that I think kind of defies your initial purview. Um, when he speaks of sojourning in God's tent and dwelling on God's holy hill, those are both references to a life that is actually being attended by God. There's benefit flowing into the world through this person's life, and it's considered to be a very enviable place. So this is just not kind of a spiritual, you know, rambling. It's not just kind of a meditation that's going on here. He's actually posing a question to basically say, who is the person who has that kind of favored life? Now, I think there's two assertions that we can, we can actually derive from that. Number one, he, he's actually saying that he's affirming the fact that God has made a way for people to have beneficial relationships to him. That'd be the first assertion. And the second assertion is the simple fact that some people actually have that. When he poses the question, he's presupposing both of those. We can know God in a way that's beneficial, and those relationships are, are real. They're around us. There's people who actually possess them. Now, the last phrase of verse 5 is very interesting because he says, he who does these things will never be moved. The way that was written in the original language, it was written as a promise and not an observation. In other words, it's not merely indicative. He's not just describing something to say, well, see, those people are, are moved. He's, he's saying those people that possess that kind of relationship with God, God has promised that no outside power or influence is going to shake them. There's something about their life that's going to be rock solid, in other words. So there's something to this. This, this source of character is something that is, is really interesting because without question, Psalm 15 actually is very consistent with the context that we find in all the biblical writers that God is the creator and sustainer of life. Therefore, he's the one that actually grants us character. He's the one that allows us to express it and demonstrate it sincerely in the world. 
in which we live. And I think even when you look in verse 2, when David says, He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, those are references to knowing the truth. And so the source of character and sincerity in this psalm is shown really to be flowing from God into the world. It's there for us, and some people actually possess it. Many don't, but some people do. That brings us to the second point, the nature and character of sincerity. And I think in many ways, David's description in this 15th psalm of the nature and the character of sincerity sounds very much like what James wrote. James was actually the younger brother of Jesus. He was the half-brother born to Joseph and Mary after Jesus' birth. And he wasn't converted. Like his other brothers and sisters, they were antagonistic towards Jesus while he was alive. But after Jesus died, his brothers and sisters were converted, and James became an author of this important book, a very important leader in, in Jerusalem, by the way. But when he wrote James 2, he was cutting through, even in the first century, he was cutting against a, a perception of Christianity that wasn't real. He was explaining what was in contrast to that, even in the middle of the first century. And this is what he wrote in James chapter 2, and it sounds a lot like Psalm 15. He says in verse 14 to 17, he said, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the, the, uh, the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it doesn't have, does not have works, is dead. So he's basically saying a person who claims to have that kind of moral mental quality inside of him and doesn't manifest it outside of him, it's a complete waste of time. And so he's speaking deeply to both of those things. He's speaking to that character, and he's speaking to the sincerity of expression, and he's saying if you have one without the other, you have nothing. You're wasting your time. Now, I, I, I wish today that more of us that, were Christian, that are Christians or claim to be Christians would pay attention to that. Because he's basically saying who you claim to be on the inside better manifest itself on the outside or you're, you're not going to be happy with the way this ends. So I think that really parallels this. But when we go back to Psalm 15 and we look at the nature and sincerity of David's description, I, I think you really find that he explains four significant factors regarding the development of character and sincerity. The first one is knowing what we believe in doing it. Now, I think on the surface, and based upon everything that we've considered so far, you would have to say, well, that's the one we expect the most. It's the most obvious, and I think it is. And what's interesting, he, he moves from his external actions, walking blamelessly and doing what is right, that would be outside of you, to his internal thought life, speaking truth in his heart, which refers to the process of intentionally keeping something in your thoughts. In other words, you do things like putting post-its on your computer screen. You do things like little uh, alarms that come up on your phone. And you keep it in front of you. And so he's talking about the wedding of these two things, the, the complement of being blameless on the outside and doing what is right and keeping the truth in front of your heart on the inside. 
And he's saying that the, this is the foundation of character and sincerity, which is, I think, overtly true, and I think it's very consistent with everything that we've considered this morning. Now, the second thing he, he says is that the development of character and sincerity can be determined by how we treat other people as well. Now, the three clauses in verse 3 refer to our conduct towards others in three different areas, three different spheres of our lives, and they're like a funnel. They go from people in general to your neighbors to your friends. And it's very interesting grammatical uh, genre or style that he's using here because he's, he's dealing with this in a way that's just going almost like when you burned ants on the sidewalk when you were, when you were little. I did. Um, and, and you took the magnifying glass, and until you got it, just, just the teeniest dot, it wouldn't burn the ants. It would just like, it, it, it would make them uncomfortable, but it would never smoke them. And he is making this smoke. He's going from people in general to your neighbors, to your friends. And these clauses are very interesting because he says, who does not slander refers to diminishing or belittling the reputation of other people. But really interesting is that Hebrew, the Hebrew term that this is derived from came from a term that was used to hobble a horse. Now hobbles, for those of you that are city slickers, um, I'm one of them. So a hobble was something you put on a horse to restrict its movement. Once you hobbled them, you didn't have to tie them up because they had to hop around and they, did, they weren't horsely at all. And that's what the slander is. It just hobbles people. It just attacks and diminishes their reputation. And that's with people in general. Now, the next click in as this little light gets hotter has to do with your neighbors and it basically he, he refers to what I would consider in the Hebrew language like a junk drawer. We all have those, right? And in the kitchen, there's drawers for the silverware and then there's drawers for all the other stuff that, that you use when you cook, at least in our kitchen. And then there's a candy drawer. And then there's usually a, drunk, a junk drawer. And a junk drawer is a drawer that's like nomad. Anything that doesn't fit in another drawer, you throw in that drawer. Well, that's kind of the term that he used here. Does no evil to his neighbor refers to anything and everything that is harmful to those who are unfortunate enough to live in prox close prox proximity to you. And so the first is picking up on slander that destroys a person's reputation. The second is actually anything that would diminish the life or the quality of life of those neighbors, those who live in close proximity to you. And then the last click that smokes the ant is this one that he speaks about your friend. Nor takes up a reproach against a friend. Now, what's really interesting about the way he wrote this, this can, this can be you listening to other people saying something about your friends and holding on to it. Or it could refer to taking it up in the sense that you make it up. Either way. In the end of the day, you're holding on to something that you should let go, and you refuse to. Now, that's, that's not a good friend. And so this, how we treat others is a very interesting treatment because it's going from the broad to the narrow, and it's dealing with the general public, with your neighbors, and even with your friends. And so good character is going to be assessed and determined by how you function 
with other people and treat other people in those spheres. Now, in verse 5, we have another kind of explanation of this and how we treat others. And the main idea is to avoid taking advantage of those that are less fortunate. Putting out money at interest is not a blanket condemnation of those of you that have made investments and expect interest return. That's not what he's criticizing here. The term that he used here is conspicuously used of usury. And what it was is kicking a person when they were down taking unfair advantage of them fiscally because there's nothing that they could do about it. That's why it's coupled or tied to this idea of taking a bribe in, against the innocent, where it refers to a person who, who makes a calculated action to distort the function of the law against people that don't deserve that. And so he is talking very tangibly about a person that would cause you to say, man, I wish you never moved on to our block. I wish you weren't my friend. You're just one of those sick human beings. And so how we treat others is a crucial aspect that has to kind of factor into what we view as good character and how we live sincerely. The third thing that he points out in the, these verses and in verse 4 is who we respect and disrespect. Now, this is a little more tricky than you might think on the surface. It's a little more complicated. The despising of a vile person and the honoring of those who fear the Lord is essentially referring to how we think about them or perceive them truly in our heart, okay? And today, I think you could actually apply that to who you follow on Twitter. The, the people you listen to, the podcasts that you subscribe to, the people you, you don't. The, in the, the music you listen to, all of that is, it, there's memes in that. There's messaging that's coming through all of that. And I think it speaks deeply to who you regard and who you disregard. It has a lot to do with those that you allow into your life and those that you keep away from your life. Now, I, I don't think that this precludes you listening to people that disagree with you in order to figure out and to better understand what, they, what they're saying, what they believe. I think there's certainly a place for that. But this is speaking deeply to how you view that in your heart. See, there's some people that I, I work with and I care about deeply, but the stuff they say is just plain stupid. There's so much of what we read and hear today that is just asinine. It, has, it makes no sense. And we live in a day that you're opting in. Whether you realize it or not, whoever you follow on Twitter is now, all of that information is curated to your, for your enjoyment. And he's speaking about character and sincerity that has something to do with the people that you regard and those that you disregard. I don't think that that's that far out of line, but this goes way into where we are and where we live today far deeper than most of us would realize. Now, the fourth and final thing that he points out is the one that I have memorized many years ago, and it's how we live in relation to our promises, and we see it in 4B. He, he deals, as I've said, with what I believe to be one of the most significant aspects of our character and our sincerity, whether we keep our word. The, the clause itself, when he says, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, is actually painting kind of a full por portrait of a person that says, yeah, I'll do that. 
Sign me up. I'm on the team. But no sooner do you get involved on it, in it, you quickly realize that it's not going to turn out the way you thought it did. It's going to actually be far more difficult, far more expensive, far more injurious than you possibly realized. Kind of like getting married. In a good way. But in the end, it's like, what was I thinking? But instead of reneging, a person of character and sincerity goes through with it. That is a remarkable, indelible, I would say, mark of character and sincerity. A person who lives in relation to his or her word as a bond. Now, I don't know... It might be my perception, but growing up, my father was a very successful contractor, and I saw him, he had a group of people that he worked with, and everything they did was on a handshake. There wasn't many people in that circle, though. They would go to closings, and they'd have to write something down because the title company couldn't, couldn't certify the title without something written down. That's how trusted they were. They knew that if the skin came off, they weren't breaking their word, any of them. And I don't see those wolf packs much anymore. Again, it might just be my lack of exposure to a lot of business circles or what have you, but I think a lot is said about your character. A lot is said about how sincere you are, simply by examining whether your yes is yes and your no is no. Now, that brings us to this third part, why character and sincerity are so difficult for us. I, I think they truly are. Now, in his recent book, The Road to Character, David Brooks, who I, I really like his writing, his style, his general take on our culture seems so helpful almost all the time. But David Brooks, in his Road to Character, he argues that at least part of the difficulty is that the pursuit of true character and sincerity aren't nearly as important to us as a culture as they once were. As families, we don't stress that with our children like we once did. Now, this is, this is what he said. He said, I've been thinking about the difference between the resume virtues and the eulogy virtues. The resume virtues are the ones you list on your resume, the skills that you bring to the job market and that contribute to external success. The eulogy vir virtues are deeper. They're the virtues that get talked about at your funeral, the ones that exist at the core of your being, whether you're kind, brave, honest, or faithful, what kind of relationships you form. Most would say that the eulogy virtues are more important than the resume virtues. I would agree with that. But I confess that for long stretches of my life, I've spent more time thinking about the latter than the former. Our education system is certainly oriented around the resume virtues more than the eulogy ones. Public conversation is too. The self-help tips in magazines, the nonfiction bestsellers. Most of us have clearer strategies for how to achieve career success than we do for how to develop profound character. So I think at the very beginning, I would agree with Brooks that there's an aspect of it that we just have to say it's just not as important. We don't value it. It's not, it's not a priority to us anymore. And how we got there, I'm not quite sure because the alternative isn't very, very good. 
Now, after, this is a 2017 book, I believe. After that book, he, Brooks did a TED Talk. And in the TED Talk, he gives this really helpful explanation of what he learned about character from a Jewish rabbi named Joseph Soloveitchik. And Soloveitchik wrote a book called The Lonely Man of Faith, which Brooks devoured. And this is what he said about it. He said, Soloveitchik said that, said there are two sides of our natures, which he called Adam 1 and Adam 2. Adam 1 is the, is the worldly, ambitious, external side of our nature. He wants to build, create, create companies, create innovation. Adam 2 is the humble side of our nature. Adam 2 wants only to do good, not only to do good, but to be good, to live in a way internally that honors God, creation, and our possibilities. Adam 1 wants to conquer the world. Adam 2 wants to hear a calling and obey the world. Adam 1 savors accomplishment. Adam 2 savors inner consistency and strength. Adam 1 asks how things work. Adam 2 asks why we're here. Adam 1's motto is success. Adam 2's motto is love, redemption, and return. And Soloveitchik argued that these two sides of our nature are at, are at war with each other. We live in perpetual self-confrontation between the external success and the internal value. And the tricky thing I'd say about these two sides of our nature is they work by different logics. The external logic is uh, economic logic. Input leads to output. Risk leads to reward. The internal side of our nature is a moral logic and often an inverse logic. You have to give to receive. You have to surrender to something outside yourself to gain strength within yourself. You have to conquer the desire to get what you want in order to fulfill yourself. You have to forget yourself. In order to find yourself, you have to lose yourself. That's pretty profound. Non-Christian, by the way. Um, I believe that when you line those things up, like David's, Soloveitchik, that's the last time I have to say it, and I made it through, um, he recognized, every time I have a name like that, it's like, okay, I'll probably hit like 75% on this. Um, he recognized that the reason remarkable character and sincerity are rarities, and that they only emerge in those of us that are humble enough to recognize the war that's inside of us. In other words, it starts with you just saying, boy, there's a part of me that thinks bad things. There's a part of me that wants wrong things the wrong way. And good character only emerges from recognizing that and staying in the war to overcome that. Only. If you're sitting here this morning thinking that one day, by happenstance, you're going to stumble onto good character. And people are just simply going to say, I love the fact that you're in my life. If you think that's just going to happen by accident, you're a fool. It won't. It is going to merge in the lives of people that are willing to say, you know, that is my war. And that evil, vile person 
is just one reckless, thoughtless, careless act for manifesting itself yet again. And by willing to plant our feet and to fight in that continual confrontation, we can show the world what redemption is like. How grand and glorious our marriages can be, even when they're challenging. We can show the world what it's like to love one another and not be entirely consumed by self and self-interest. And so in the end, I think we have to admit that the answer to the greatest difficulty that we face in developing and possessing character and sincerity is, is us. It's not your job. It's not your spouse. It's, it's not mold in your home. It's you. It's something terrible that's inside of you. But it can be overcome. The question is, are you willing to do the hard work that's necessary. Okay, let's take a couple of questions and we'll be done. So if I'm struggling to do good works, obey God, and failing a lot, is that, is that then an indication I don't really have faith? No, um, not at all. I, th there's a clarity to what James wrote that I think we need to listen to. And I, I don't think it's that different than what Jesus said in John, it's recorded in John 15, where he says, look, I'm the vine and you're the branches. And my father's the husbandman. And any branch that bears fruit, he prunes it to bear more fruit. And any branch that doesn't bear fruit, he cuts it off and casts it into the fire to be burned. And that is a terrifying statement. But it's essentially exactly what James said. He said, go ahead and try to convince me that you have faith by what you believe. He said, I'll convince you that I have faith by what I do. Now, this question poses, poses the issue or presses into the issue of a person that really is genuinely striving to do the right thing, but oftentimes can't. And I, I think the Bible oftentimes speaks to that. You take uh, the second chapter of Philippians in verse 12 and 13. Paul says that that you, you, you need to, to strive in fear and trembling. There's a sense in which you are pursuing righteousness because, because it's God that's at work in you, to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Now, that little couplet's really interesting because the, he's at work in you to will according to his good pleasure is what an old woman told me. That, that means God fixes your wanter. He makes you want the right things. But he's at work in you to both to will and to work. But it doesn't say how connected those two are. You see, they're, set, they're coordinates, but they're not immediate. And so in the Christian life, oftentimes, we have the desire to do the right thing before God grants us the capacity to do the right thing. Oftentimes, they're not just meshed together. And so I've seen many sincere men and women of faith that have to persevere. And so in a situation like that, if you are continuing to say, God, I agree with you, this is what I should have in my life or I should not have in my life, but I can't seem to do it. I'm going to continue to trust you. I'm going to continue to kind of agonize within this tension that you put me in, but 
I'm not going to give up. I don't think you should give up a confidence in your faith if that's the struggle. But you see, James is talking about a person that has no fruit. Jesus was talking about a branch that has no fruit. And if you claim to know Jesus and there's absolutely no fruit in your life, you need to really examine whether you should be okay with yourself. And maybe it just comes from a, an alarm inside of you that says, I do not, and I, I'm really encouraged by a lot of what's going on in the church today because there's very few people that are willing just to be Klingons to the church anymore. See, in the, if you grew up in the South, you, you knew that the prettiest girls in town you would never be able to date unless you went to church. And so there was a motivation, you know, to go to church. And now that we're getting over that, which I think is quite healthy because people are saying, screw church, I can date whoever I want. And that's not a bad thing. Because when we put pressure on people to act as Christians when they're not Christians, it just, it just convolutes the whole thing. So this is just about, sincerity is about being who you are on the outside that is consistent with who you are on the inside. hope that helps. Next question. When God convicts us of our poor character and lack of sincerity, how do we find joy and hope when our sin seems so overwhelming and crushing? That's a great question. I, I, I think it would be very similar to the first time you put skis on. There's probably a few of you out there that I know you well enough that you were probably just kind of a natural at it, but most of you probably just sucked. And you're thinking, I have spent so much money and it is freezing out here. What was I thinking? But you kept going. It might have hurt you. You might have injured yourself. But you kept going. Why? Why didn't you just... Pack it in. Why didn't you just call the toboggan and ride down on the orange sled? You didn't. Why? There's something in each of us, Christian or non-Christian, that the Bible describes as a mago day, a part of him. This is the main thing when I do funerals. This is why we, this is why we grieve when a human life close to us is taken or lost. Because there's a little bit of God in our world that is now gone. And there's something inside of you that causes you to know you can be a better human being. There's something inside of you that knows you can be a bad human being too. Solovichik. I could say that ten times now. Um, he was touching upon something because you know there's an Adam 1 and Adam 2. And what keeps us going is our belief that one day somebody could look into our eyes and say, you're my best friend. My life is better because you were in it. We know we can be that, right? And that's why you can actually handle the truth. That's why in Proverbs 26 it would say that, that faithful are the wounds of a friend and deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. We know that every time people flatter us, it's not good for us. And there's times that we need to hear direct, honest, judgment day truth so that we can correct course. Because if we just continue happily, merrily down the road, it's not going to end well. We know that. That's why our faith works. We trust God. We trust that Jesus in our lives 
is going to correct our course and show us where we should go. So it's not a reason for a lack of faith. It's a reason, a cause for faith. Last question. No questions. All right, let me, let me explain one thing. When the, People come to me almost after every service, um, and they say, they put up two questions, and they said no questions. And they didn't put up my question, so it should have been at least three questions. Well, there's, there's, there's a lot of questions back there. Now, the difficulty of, of the person who does the slides is that they're filtering through a lot of different statements and a lot of different questions. You know, and so we can't deal with whether or not global warming is legitimate every Sunday. Well, I probably never deal with that on any Sunday. I, I, I have to tell you that. And so, but the, the, the slide operators, some of you will catch that later. Um, the slide operators, they have, to, they have to filter all of that and make coherence. And they get punished, severely punished by me and James when they put up bad questions. And so you'll see some of them that are kind of afraid of that punishment. And so they'll, they'll embed three questions into one question. That deserves punishment. That is, in my opinion, lack of character and sincerity. <laughs> Just so we have an overt example that everybody can work with, right? Okay. All right, we're going to prepare for communion now. Communion is a time that we take what's in front of us and kind of hold it like a plumb line through our lives to say, well, how does this line up? I can be a better human being. I believe you can too. When you hold this up, find what it is that you need to confess and repent of today. There's something in all of us, I promise you. So it's not just those of us that are the grungy part. It's all of us. And Paul says when we examine ourselves, God doesn't need to judge us. That's simply telling you about the integrity with which, and sincerity with which we look at our lives. And we're not looking. I always hear people to say, man, I'll, I'll mention, man, I saw you didn't take communion. Well, I examined myself and I, I discovered some sin. It's like, have you ever taken communion? It's like, well, yeah. I said, I can't examine myself even once without finding something I need to confess. And so communion is not the evidence of sinlessness. It's the testimony of sinners. We dip a piece of bread into a glass of wine. The bread represents Jesus' broken body and the wine has spilt blood. And we're basically saying, that's me. We trust that God shows up in this in a very, a very substantial way and manifests himself in our lives. So if you're a Christian, I pray that you would take this, this time very seriously. If you're not a Christian, you don't need to participate in this. Not because we... We don't invite you, but just simply because it's, it, it's meaningless until you trust Jesus, until you take the gospel deep into your heart. So let's pray. Father, I, I, I pray that you would help us to best understand these issues of our character and whether we're sincere. I, I, I fear that there's far too many of us that are living in kind of a deluded isolation when it comes to these issues. I tend to agree with what Brooke said, that uh, many of us don't hold, put much weight in this anymore, and we should.
I think as the representatives of Jesus and his church today, we should be greatly concerned with whether our lives depict true character and sincerity. I pray that you would help us in our examination of these moments. I pray that you would show up to these, your people here now. Attend these things we pray in Jesus' good name. Amen. You can find more audio as well as study questions and sermon notes at l2church.com. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us a message through the contact form on our website. Thanks for listening. Thank you.